We'll be reading this morning from Luke chapter 21, verses 5 through 38. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified. For these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are days of vengeance, to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable 
Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. This is the word of the Lord. We live in a world that is relatively predictable, right? There's nothing new under the sun. People live, people die. Nations fight and war happens. Some nations win and some lose. People work, sleep, eat, marry, and so on. Ecclesiastes is pretty clear on that note. But within all of us is a desire to know that one final peace. We, we all have this sense that it's not just going to keep going forever. What about the end? Not just the end of my life, but the end of all things. We have this longing to know, and, and we as humans like to think that we know what's going to happen. Just some recent examples. Some thought the world was going to collapse during Y2K, or for some reason in 2012 when the Mayan calendar ran out, or 2020 when the coronavirus showed up. No matter how many times people get it wrong, everyone still wants to know how exactly it all ends. In fact, as we saw from the very end of this passage, there are people who are interested in what Jesus is saying because it has to do with the end. And Jesus in Luke 21 gives us a window to the truth about what is going to happen in the last days leading up to his second coming. It's not one story among lots of plausible apocalypses. It's the truth about what was to come for his disciples and some of which has yet to come for us. Now, if you've been around Christianity for a little while, you might avoid talking about the end times like the plague you might see the book of Revelation as too daunting or what Jesus says as intimidating. Or perhaps you feel that people who focus so much on eschatology, they are too unbending. So you'd rather not enter the conversation. But let me start by telling you this. If you find yourself uncertain about the end, 
Listening to Jesus here in Luke 21 could prove to be the most frequently but frequently neglected but most essential part of enduring in your Christian life. Followers of Jesus who start to live with their eye on the end have exactly what they need to patiently undergo unimaginable hardship. And the goal of Jesus telling us about what sort of things will come leading up to his return is not to produce terror, it's to produce endurance. Sure, it will include frightening things for those who aren't in Christ, but what about those who do trust him, who do believe in him? Should we be scared to look ahead to the disaster that he spells out in parts of the New Testament? Based on this passage in Luke, I think the answer to that is no. Jesus is talking here about things like the destruction of Jerusalem, possibly being killed for believing in him, terrible signs, and his spectacular arrival with great power. He sure seems like he's trying to scare us silly. But here's the, here's the purpose of what he's saying. It's our main point this morning. Anticipating that Jesus will return to save you prepares you to endure in faith until he comes. Anticipating that Jesus will return to save you prepares you to endure in faith until he comes. Sometimes when we think about scripture's description of the end, that final time, we think that we as God's people are going to be swept up in this fireball of God's judgment on the earth as if he's going to lay waste to it all and somehow forget us in the process. Now, I'm not denying the fireball of judgment. The question is, do we get included in the wiping out of, of the earth and the recreation of what has been cursed? Friends, the truth is that even if we live in these last days where wars and persecutions are going on and we lose our lives in the process, that doesn't mean that we're hopeless. In fact, that means our redemption is close. We're not meant to be terrified. In fact, we're the only people on this planet who have reason not to be. Anticipating that Jesus will return to save you will enable you to endure, even if your life is in jeopardy, even if you found yourself with a gun to your head for the sake of the gospel. In this passage, Jesus isn't simply just narrating the things that will happen to Jerusalem or what will surround his second coming. He's sharing this for a particular reason, a particular purpose of preparing us for how things are gonna go down. And that preparation shows up in three exhortations. Now there's more, there's more than three total exhortations in this whole big chunk of Luke 21, but this is my best attempt to summarize what's in front of us here today. There are three major exhortations. The first, keep following Jesus. The second, listen to what he says and anticipate its fulfillment. And third, stay alert to his coming. First is keep following Jesus, starting in verse five. Jesus had been teaching in the temple during these last days of his life. Remember, we've already seen him enter Jerusalem. We are, we are now the last hunk of Luke is the last week of Jesus's life. We saw just, just last week, Jesus escaping every trap set for him by the scribes and the Sadducees. He is the son of David, the Christ who is worthy of the praise of every man and woman. Now, as he's 
leaving the temple to stay the night at the Mount of Olives, Jesus introduces the fate of Jerusalem and the fate of the whole world too. Keep in mind that Jesus is sharing these things on purpose with his disciples just before he dies on the cross to satisfy God's wrath against sin for all those who believe. So his time is limited. But that tells us that it's very important to Jesus that he prepares us for what lies even beyond his crucifixion, even before that moment happens. So as they were walking through the temple, some of the people around Jesus might not just be his disciples, maybe some other folks mixed in. Some of them were marveling at the architecture of the temple. And after King Herod ordered massive renovations on the temple, it was a masterpiece of a building. I mean, it was just amazing, breathtaking, in fact. And it was the crown of Israel. Some of its foundation stones and wall stones weighed hundreds of tons, anywhere from 35 to 45 feet long, several body lengths deep and tall, massive stones. It was adorned with incalculable amounts of gold, pillars larger than tree trunks, and beautiful ornamentation. Just imagine, imagine, imagine uh, the, the marble, marble monuments of DC on steroids and just littered with gold, just beautiful things. But Jesus is not impressed because the temple has become antagonistic to God's presence, proven in the fact that Jesus, God in the flesh, is opposed in the temple. So he repeats his hor the horrible pr pronouncement he made back in Luke 19, here in verse 6. As for these things that you see, the day will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus is explaining that there will come a day when this beautiful house of God, this reconstructed temple after it's already been rebuilt once because it was destroyed by Babylon, this one too will be torn down to the ground. So naturally, someone asked Jesus, when's, when's this going to happen? How? How will we know? And he says this, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things first must take place, but the end will not be at once. It's worth saying here that before, before we start to determine, okay, he's talking about Jerusalem, what does that have to do with me? Jesus is specifically answering these questions regarding the temple, but he's answering in such a way that the destruction of the temple and the events leading up to that are a microcosm of what will be true of the time leading up to his second coming. So he's speaking of the temple but his words apply broadly to us far, far after the temple was destroyed in the year AD 70. So Jesus acknowledge, acknowledges and predicts the fact that lots of people are going to claim that they speak for God or claim to have special authority in the name of Jesus leading up to the punishment of Israel. But again, his words also ring true of the time prior to his coming. There will be some who make predictions about the end. They will attempt to make bold statements, even to the point of claiming that they are Jesus himself. They're not just kind of like Elvis impersonators who give us a good laugh. They're imposters who are not worth giving a moment of airtime. 
Do not go after them, Jesus says. And more than that, while these people who speak with some feigned authority and they start to whip up the masses into a frenzy, you, follower of Jesus, do not be terrified, he says. No matter how extreme the claims or no matter how many wars happen, Jesus is calling us to keep following him. Keep following Jesus. The world has every reason to be terrified. Just like the inhabitants of Jerusalem would have every reason to be terrified when they saw Rome surrounding their city. Because they would be left frantically looking for answers or some kind of hope. But friends, we're, we're not left frantically looking for answers or hope. For those who trust Jesus' words, we know that the end is near. That shouldn't be a major surprise to us. We're in the last days right now, the on-ramp to Jesus' second coming, so to speak. But the strength of his promise to raise us from the dead is so strong that we need not be afraid. Keep following Jesus. His is a road of certainty and peace because he's marked out the end, a wonderful and joyous ending at that. And we know where the finish line is. In the meantime, though, Jesus says to those around him, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. It seems that Jesus is saying here that the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple must happen first, but he won't return immediately after that. If you can imagine being a Jew in Jerusalem when the city is converted into a pile of rubble, you're probably thinking, this is, this is it. This is the total end. But Jesus is saying, this has to happen first, but the end won't be at once. Keep following me even after this city of God is leveled. So that's instructive for us. Even when it seems like the worst of the worst might be happening and we feel like there's no hope, there's nothing beyond this, Jesus is calling us to keep following him. Imagine, imagine him in the garden before the cross is there, is there something beyond this? Father, let this cup pass from me. And yet the father was calling the son, keep, keep obeying. Obey to death, and then you'll be honored afterwards. To try to draw a parallel to, to what might be in the minds of, of those in Jerusalem that Jesus is talking to, a modern situation might, might be this. I, I wondered what would, what would happen if our religious liberty was taken from us in this country. That seems significant enough to scare us if we, if we just kind of play that out, maybe, maybe uh, envision it a little bit. And I'm not trying to spook, spook anybody, just considering the possibility, what if the first person in our church were jailed for their pro proclamation of Christ? Somebody that you know. Would we say it's all over and we'd stick our heads in the sand? Would we frantically wonder how to keep on being a Christian if it were illegal to believe in Jesus? Would we lock and load and try to change things back and regain our liberty? I think no. Even in that moment, the call from Jesus would still be the same. Keep following Jesus who says to not be terrified. Do not be led astray or alarmed when people proclaim that the end is near or when violent things start happening. They are frantic and uncertain. But friends, we do not have to be. Interestingly, verse, verses 10 through 19 depict that exact scenario of potential persecution. 
First, Jesus says to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. There will be a lead up to the destruction of Jerusalem just like there will be a lead up to the final coming of Christ. The Romans came to destroy the city in response to a Jewish uprising in the 60s AD to try to buck Roman rule. So you can imagine the stirrings that were going on in Jerusalem before the hammer came down. But again, this is a a microcosm of what will happen to the whole earth as well. There will be wars, natural disasters that prove that the earth is groaning in its birth pangs, waiting for final deliverance. The question is whether we interpret them as such or whether we're just left thinking that all of this is run-of-the-mill stuff. So when you see rockets volleyed between neighboring nations and when you see the death toll of a global pandemic rising, where does your mind go? Fear of what might happen? Understandable, but what about taking your mind in this direction? Jesus told me that this would happen. Jesus gave me a heads up. And when I see these things, he told me to be on the lookout and to not be terrified. Verse 12, before all this, they will lay hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogue and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. Consider Jesus telling this to his disciples. Before Jerusalem is destroyed, you guys are going to be hated and persecuted, imprisoned and dragged into court. How would you feel to know that ahead of time? Maybe, maybe just a little bit unsettled? But Jesus is clear to them that this will be an opportunity to bear witness to him. So he tells them, settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. That seems like an odd encouragement But Jesus is calling his disciples to trust him. When his disciples will be the most opposed for his name's sake is when his power through his Holy Spirit will be the most apparent through them. They will have such a wise and fitting response to their adversaries that they won't be able to withstand or contradict them. Jesus predicted this stuff, but was his prediction right? Well, we have an answer in Acts 4. You guys know this story of Peter and John who were arrested for healing a crippled man in the name of Jesus. And when it came time to give an explanation, Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and proclaimed Jesus boldly to his captors. You can only imagine Peter having Jesus' words flashing through his mind. I will give you a mouth and wisdom, Peter. Don't try to whip up a good speech. I will be with you. And he was with Peter and John both. This warning was about what would happen to his disciples before Jerusalem fell, but we do well to store this up in our hearts because we will be hated just as they were hated, just as Jesus was hated. He even says in verses 16 to 18, you will be delivered up even by by parents and brothers and relatives and friends And some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all 
for my name's sake. Even if we, if, if we are repre- representing Christ to a world that, that hates him, we can count on being hated. Have you come to a place where you accept that fact? I find myself trying to run away from that fact. But even as I've been thinking about this text this week, there's been a, a, a bit more comfort in, in just saying and admitting from the get-go, I, I will be hated in some form or fashion for claiming the name of Christ. Again, Jesus, Jesus told me that would be true. I, tr- I trust his word. But imagine, imagine your brother or sister turning you in because they know you believe this stuff. I'm not going to, to be one of those like, self-proclaimed prophets who says that Christianity will be an illegal in America tomorrow, but I think I wouldn't be doing myself or any, any of you any favors by ignoring Jesus' words that if I follow him and if you follow him, we're going to be persecuted at some level. Expect it. Why? Because Jesus said so. He told us that it would happen. That means continue, continue following him knowing that you're going to be hated specifically, not just, not just for lots of other reasons, but specifically for his name's sake. If you're afraid of being hated for Christ's sake, ask yourself why. Just ask an honest question, why? What's my real reason? Because that's a chance for us to repent of unbelief and trust that he will preserve us, like he says in the very next verses but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. How? I mean, dying sounds a whole lot like harm to the hairs on someone's head. Jesus' point is that even if you were to die for his name's sake, even if every hair on your head was singed off at the stake like the martyr John Huss, is it truly a loss? James Edwards says, from the perspective of eternity, the loss of one's earthly life is no greater than the loss of a single hair. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. By continuing to follow Jesus, you will gain what cannot be lost, which is eternal life. So, if you haven't received a threat on your life recently because of your faith in Christ, what are we supposed to do with this foreboding proclamation that Jesus is making. He is giving you the ultimate assurance that you can, by his power, undergo mistreatment for his name's sake and still endure. If you're a Christian, you, you can do that by his power. He's given you an assurance, a promise, in fact. And perhaps this promise, if we take it wholeheartedly, will lead us to consider taking risks for the sake of someone you know hearing the gospel, knowing you have the Son's word, you have the Father's approval and the Spirit's power. Go ahead and bear witness under pressure. There's no need to fear. Even if you die, you are safe, which sounds like such a paradox. Even if you die, you are safe. Keep on following Jesus. Point number two, listen to what Jesus says and anticipate its fulfillment, verses 20 to 28. For the sake of time, I'll have to move a a bit quicker here, but this next section is geared primarily towards those moments leading up to the great fall of Jerusalem. 
Jesus says that they will be days of vengeance from God against that city for their rejection of the Messiah that God had promised them. Historians record about a million killed and almost 100,000 taken captive, which is just astonishing. That's a million people is more than the population of Dayton. A million killed, 100,000 taken captive, which even, even if those numbers are rounded to like the next 10,000, that's still amazing. A million people slaughter for the rejection of God's son, and it shows that not even the women or the children are spared from that. So what does Jesus tell his hearers in preparation for that intense judgment? But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those inside the city depart, and let those, not those who are out in the country enter in. This isn't an invitation to be cowardly from, from Jesus. This is Jesus saying, listen, the wrath of God is going to come on this place, and nothing will stop this from happening. In fact, the way that he says Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled is to show that this judgment on Israel has a particular place in God's plan, and it will not go beyond God's predetermined intensity or duration. But the main thing here is that Jesus offered a warning, and he wasn't going to necessarily, in person, take those people by the hand and take them out of this place of God's judgment and lead them to safety. It was up to the disciples to determine what to do with his words. The historian Eusebius notes in the first century that some Christians in the city did this very thing. They fled Judea before Rome leveled the city for one reason and one reason only, because Jesus had warned them ahead of time. This is a sort of lesson for us because we are at a crossroads this morning. We can listen to what Jesus is saying about persecution, about the end, about his coming, and put this into practice by believing and applying it, or we can put it off and be caught off guard like whoever else didn't take Jesus seriously about what he said about Jerusalem. Being caught off guard in the end after we've heard what Jesus is saying here and what he's about to say about his second coming would ultimately be the result of one thing, and that's unbelief. Faith says, I trust that your word is true and good. But unbelief says the exact opposite. Here's what John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace and an English pastor says, the inability to take God at his word should not be lamented as infirmity, like, like an illness that's happening to me, but watched and prayed and fought against as a great sin. So that's kind of a litmus test for us this morning is, am I taking Jesus at face value or I think he's, do I think he's crazy? Do I think that what he's saying surely, surely can't be true, surely won't be possible? That's the root of unbelief. In other words, not taking Jesus at his word has at its root a rebelliousness that reveals that we don't want to believe what he's saying is true or we don't want to believe at least that it has massive bearing on my life. So even with things that are difficult to hear, we need to ask the Spirit to just help us lean towards those hard ideas or those commands with trust 
rather than casting doubt on his words as if he, as the omniscient God, has no idea what he's talking about or he has no right to speak it to us. We must listen to what Jesus is saying and anticipate its fulfillment. Both are acts of faith. Jesus is the God who cannot lie and who has all authority to determine what will come. And we can settle it in our hearts right, right now, right this morning, that Jesus is telling us what is true about days that haven't even happened yet. So now Jesus shifts to talking from about specifically Jerusalem to specifically his second coming. But the signs will be similar to the ones that will lead up to Jerusalem's destruction. He says, and there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. The coming of Jesus will be unlike anything this universe has known. We have no, nothing to really go off of, no comparison to what his second coming will be like. It will be such that people would be overcome with fear about what's happening to the world. This isn't something where, where we'll be thinking, I, th I think Jesus is about to come back. It will be unmistakable because the world will see the Son of Man, the risen Lord Jesus, coming in a cloud with power and great glory. At the ascension, the, the angels in Acts 1 told the disciples that Jesus would return in the same way that he ascended, which was into the clouds. And this picture of Jesus in the clouds is shown to us in Daniel 7. I don't know if you remember, two years ago, Mark Waite preached on Daniel 7, and he described it as this picture is the other end of the ascension cloud. So Jesus is, is leaving the earth, and this is him as the Son of Man in heaven. Daniel 7, 13 says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the cloud of heaven there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was pre pre presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And that picture, that glorious picture of the, the Ancient of Days giving the Son of Man all authority Jesus' second coming is him coming with all of that authority, all of this glory, unmistakable. And now he's standing there as a man walking through Jerusalem, and yet as the omnipotent God, he is giving us a glimpse of what his power and might will look like after he conquers sin and death on the cross. He is the son of man who, who will be given and has been given all authority over heaven and earth. His coming will cause nations and nature to go crazy. People will be overtaken with fear and they'll start to faint with this sense of something significant and terrifying is coming. The earth will finally realize who the king is. But, but look at verse 28 before I read. Look at what he says next. Next. 
He says, now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Everyone else will be scared out of their minds, but you stand up, lift your heads up, get the tambourines and the trumpets ready, cue the music because your redemption is drawing near. This is Jesus' goal in sharing this right now. He wants to instill confidence in us that his return is a welcome thing for those who follow him. I've got to say that that, that doesn't make sense at first glance. Jesus, if, if I believe what you're saying about the distress and the fighting and all this chaos just prior to your coming, how am I supposed to lift my head in hope? That doesn't make sense all this calamity and war and holy judgment, how am I not going to be terrified? Well, you first have to answer this question. Why is Jesus coming back? Just think about that for, for a moment. Why is Jesus coming back primarily? What's his purpose? What's his goal? If in your mind you've jumped to the answer, well, he's coming to bring justice on earth and do away with sin, forever. That's, that's a true statement, but you've skipped something. I know that's, that's primarily where my mind goes. His, his second coming is so grand and full of power, and the reason for that is because he's going to make everything right, he, which he will. He will make everything right. But listen closely to, to Hebrews 9, verses 27 to 28, because this, this has personal significance for you. We're thinking cosmically, yes, he will make things right. He will judge the earth. He will do away with sin and death finally and forever. But he's got a very important priority before that happens. Hebrews 9 says this, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. He came the first time to bear the sins of many and atone for them, which he did. But he's not coming to do that again. What, he's what is he coming for a second time then? He's coming a second time to save you. He's coming to save you. So when he says, be on the lookout, and when you see some of these things happening, lift up your heads because your Savior is coming. Your redemption is drawing near. That's, that's how we can face these coming moments without fear that the world will have when they see the glorious Son of Man. The world will see their reckoning right in front of them. This, this, is, this is where we give an answer to God. But we, as Christians, as the church, we will see our salvation coming on the clouds for us, the bridegroom for his bride. So I'll ask you this, what, what do you feel like is the biggest barrier for you anticipating the coming of Jesus? For me, personally and honestly, my biggest barrier was, was that right there, that I think Jesus is coming with, his, with a bloodlust and his eyes set on dealing with sin and he's gonna miss me somehow or he's, or he's just, he's, he's gonna pull me along eventually but, but he's gotta do this first. But that's not true. 
He's coming to save us. So what's, what's the biggest barrier in, in you anticipating, getting ready for, eagerly awaiting, as Hebrews says, eagerly awaiting for him? Another question, what do you think would change if you began asking the Holy Spirit to give you faith to trust what Jesus is saying about the future? What do you feel like would change if you said, Holy Spirit, this is hard for me to fully accept, but give me faith to trust what Jesus is saying. What would be maybe the first dominoes to fall in your life, in your heart, if you began asking for that? Just a few things to consider. Those, those questions will be there in the follow-up if you want to dwell on them just a little bit more. But for now, the third point, stay alert to his coming. Stay alert to his coming, verses 29 through 38. Time won't permit me to take too deep of a look at the fig tree parable that Jesus shares next. But the point is that when you see these signs and groanings of the earth and wars and strife, then the kingdom of God is near. And the generation of these last days, remember every generation after Christ has been a part of the last days. These generations will not pass away until all of it takes place. And friends, if you hear anything this morning, hear this, the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of Jesus Christ is right around the corner, which I hope after this morning, that doesn't fill you with a sense of dread, but it fills you with a sense of, of great, like, I can't, I can't wait. Like, he's coming soon. The kingdom that he opened the door to and started bringing to earth when he came the first time is almost fully here. You can count on that because you can trust Jesus' words. Again, listen to him and anticipate Heaven and earth will pass away, but the words of Jesus, of God himself, will stand, which is why we must stay alert, because he's called us to attention, and he's not, he's not fibbing in the slightest. Here's his final warning and encouragement to us in verses 34 to 36. And if you, if you understand that coming of the Son of Man as good news for his church, it puts this in perspective. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Watch yourself lest you lose your faculties and be stuck in this hangover of worldly life. Jesus says, even the cares of this life will threaten your anticipation and awareness that Jesus will be here soon. And we can, we can attest to that, can't we? The cares of this life, when they mount up, one of the first things to go for us is any sense that Jesus is on the horizon. Philip Ryken says this, this is why we cannot simply drift through life without thinking seriously about the end of the world. The decision we make about Jesus Christ now determines where we will end up for all eternity. This is a matter of spiritual life and death. So every time Jesus talked about the end of the world, he always gave his disciples the same practical advice to get ready for it now, before the time comes. Jesus is so consistent with that. Get ready now. 
I, I, I want you to be prepared. I, I want there to be an excitement about the reunion that's going to take place. Jesus did not give us signs of the coming judgment so we could chart the future, but to exhort us to practice what J.C. Ryle described as perpetual preparedness. Are you ready for the end of the world, he asks. That's another question worth asking. Are you ready for the end of the world? It's, it's simple, it's complicated at the same time, but I don't think I've, I've sat and tried to answer that question honestly and and. Certainly. That day will come suddenly, so stay awake. Pray so that you may may have strength and may not be lulled to sleep. We want the bridegroom to find us there with our lamps burning, ready to receive him when he comes. And the result is that we would stand before the Son of Man. We will be presented before him in righteousness. We will come face to face with our deliverer, our salvation, our Lord and God, who is Jesus the Christ, and he will welcome us into that kingdom. Stay alert, says Jesus, even today, even right now. Go to lunch, go to youth camp, go back home with the awareness that the kingdom of God is near. That should change things for us. One, one last illustration before we conclude. I'm, I'm an Olympics fanboy. When the X Games or the Olympics rolls around, I'm just, I'm jazzed. I'm, I'm excited. Sure, I, I like when, when I get to see the U.S. pull out some swimming medals and whatnot and, and those feats and achievements, but all of the achievements that do happen at the Olympics from any country are just amazing to me, like the Philippines getting their first gold or the Tunisian under, underdog winning in the pool just a few days ago. But few feats have amazed me more than, than Katie Ledecky's gold in the 1,500-meter freestyle swim. That's, it's just a number, and there's lots, of, there's lots of different swimming events, but that's almost a mile of swimming that Ledecky did in just over 15 minutes. That's just astounding to me. I just wonder what it would be like for, for the average Joe to be lined up on the sidelines running that same mile next to her swimming and whether she'd win or not. Swimming for a mile sounds exhausting, but what could possibly sustain someone's determined effort and endurance over a grueling race like that? I don't know Ledecky's answer. I haven't heard her asked or give a response, but I'd like to think there would be something, something along these lines. I'm about to swim these 1,500 meters, which will probably feel like an eternity, but If I touch that wall first, I'm an Olympic gold medalist and the fastest in the world at this race. That's true for swimming, that the anticipation helps an athlete endure. And friends, anticipating that Jesus will return to save you prepares you to endure in faith until he comes. I think sometimes the result of our weariness and the perpetual weariness and that downward kind of slope is because there's, not, there's nothing we're looking forward to. There's nothing we're anticipating real time. So anticipating, anticipating the fact that Jesus is coming for me as his child to deliver me into his presence will help you endure until he comes.
It will help you endure until that moment when you touch the wall and stand before Jesus as he awards you the crown of righteousness. Because the crown of righteousness belongs to who? Paul tells us it belongs to all who have loved his appearing. That's who is awarded this crown, the ones who have loved his appearing. And, and after even just reading this from Jesus, I, I want to love his appearing. I want to anticipate with a whole heart and trust that he is going to do this. He's going to fulfill each and every word that he said. His words aren't going to pass away. I want to love his appearing. And that's what we, what we hope that the Spirit works in us even just beginning today.